0: MyPatriotSupply.com.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today we'll be going over the recently released documents of the Gilgo Beach murders, otherwise known as Lisk or the Long Island Serial Killer. This episode will be based solely on the bail application documents uploaded by CBS New York. The documents detail how a newly established task force was able to connect the dots and tie one New York man to the death of three women. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. On December 11, 2010, police officer John Malia was doing some training with his canine Blue along Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach, New York, which is on Long Island. It was during that training that Blue stumbled upon a set of human remains. A wider search ensued, and by two days later, on December 13th, three more sets of human remains were found, all within a quarter mile of one another. The first set was identified as belonging to a tiny, blonde, 24-year-old woman named Melissa Bethelamy, who was only 4'10". Sets 2 through 4 were identified as belonging to Megan Waterman, Amber Costello, and Maureen Bernard Barnes. As of yet, no one has been charged with Maureen's murder. Megan Waterman was 22 years old, 5'5", with blonde hair. Amber was a 27-year-old who was 4'11", with brown hair, and Maureen was 25 years old, 4'11", and also had brown hair. All but one of those victims was under 5 feet tall, and all of them had died via homicidal violence. Each of their bodies had been left 22 to 33 feet from the edge of the road, bound similarly with either belts or tape, and three of the four women were wrapped in a burlap-type material. They were all missing clothing and were known sex workers. Prior to each of their deaths, they had each contacted someone who was using a burner phone, and the cell phones of two of the victims, Melissa and Maureen, were used by their killer after they were killed. The investigation into who might have killed these women was a big one and went on for more than a decade. During the investigation, a witness in Amber's disappearance recalled a first-generation Chevy Avalanche as being the vehicle her suspected killer drove off in. In January of 2022, a team of county, state, and federal law enforcement band together to review every single detail of the case for anything they might have missed, and they found something a first-gen Chevy Avalanche registered to a man named Rex Hewerman. Rex was a Manhattan architect, husband, and father who lived in Massapequa Park, which is about an hour or so outside of the city. He is currently 59 years old, which, based on his date of birth, would have made him between the ages of 43 and 46 when each of these women were killed. Rex just so happened to live 19 miles from where the bodies were found, but as the crow flies, it's just about six and a half miles. And I can't not mention here that in between those two locations where the bodies were found and Rex's house is the Amityville Horror House. That is a completely irrelevant piece of information, but you have it now. It is my gift to you. Law enforcement started digging into Rex and found cell phone billing records that tied him to the cell site locations of where specific burner phones were used to set up the meetings with three of the four victims, as well as where taunting phone calls were made to one of Melissa's relatives and where calls were made to check Maureen's voicemail following her disappearance. Promising connections, but that was just the beginning. All of the women were believed to have disappeared from the Massapequa Park area, which is where Rex lived, and the taunting phone calls to Melissa's relative were made wildly close to where Rex worked in Midtown Manhattan. Massapequa Park is about 38 miles east of Midtown Manhattan, and Gilgo Beach is about 19 miles east of Massapequa Park in the opposite direction. Do not worry, I'm gonna upload a map of everything to the Gilgo Beach highlight on my Instagram for this episode so you can see everything for yourself. There is a lot of points on this map. The documents state that it's believed that Rex Heuerman is the man who used the burner phones to arrange meetings with all four victims and is the man who used Melissa and Maureen's phones following their deaths. And I will repeat, he has not been charged with Maureen's murder. Let's talk a little about each individual victim, starting with the first, Maureen Bernard Barnes. Maureen was contacted by a burner phone on Friday, July 6th, 2007. Between Friday the 6th and Monday the 9th, the burner phone contacted her 16 different times, with the last call taking place at 11.56 p.m. in Midtown Manhattan near the 59th Street Bridge. I found three different addresses listed for Rex's architectural firm, but the one that seemed to correspond with the timeline of the murders was only two whole miles away from that bridge. Maureen was never seen again after the 9th, but her phone made a call three days later on the 12th to check her voicemail. That call was made from a location along the Long Island Expressway in Islandia, and Islandia is another county on Long Island, which is about 24 miles east of Rex's home. The next victim we're going to talk about is Melissa Barthelemy. Melissa was last seen one day after the two-year anniversary of Maureen's disappearance. Seven days prior to her disappearance on Friday, July 3rd, she too was contacted by someone using a burner phone. The burner phone contacted her again on Monday the 6th, Thursday the 9th, and Friday the 10th. On the 10th, which is the day she disappeared, that burner phone traveled from Massapequa Park, where Rex lived, to Manhattan, where Rex worked. Later that evening, Melissa's cell phone traveled from Midtown Manhattan to Massapequa. Rex's personal cell phone mirrored those movements. At 1.43 a.m. on what was now July 11th, Melissa's phone was still pinging in Massapequa Park. But later that day, it was used to make an outgoing call to, you guessed it, check her voicemail. It's almost as if the killer was trying to keep tabs on whether or not anyone had noticed his victims were missing yet. The call to check Melissa's voicemail pinged in Freeport, which is another county on Long Island west of Rex's house. Initially, I assumed you might pass through Freeport on your way to Midtown Manhattan, but when I mapped it out, you probably wouldn't. The easiest way to Midtown would be 38 miles with an average time of 59 New York minutes. You could pass through Freeport if you wanted to, but it would be 39 miles with an average of about an hour and 12 minutes. That being said, if you were going to drive from I don't know, Gilgo Beach to Midtown Manhattan or vice versa, you would drive straight through the middle of Freeport. Melissa's phone was used two more times, again on the 11th and on the 12th, to once again check her voicemail. Those calls pinged from Babylon, which is also in Long Island and east of Rex's house, going towards the area where Maureen's phone had pinged in Islandia. Those calls were made on the weekend, which may explain why they weren't made from Midtown Manhattan. The calls to Melissa's voicemail stopped, but the use of her phone did not. On Friday, July 17th, Thursday, July 23rd, Wednesday, August 5th, Wednesday, August 9th, and Wednesday, August 26th, Melissa's phone made calls to a relative. The relative reported that a man on the other end of the phone told him that he had sexually assaulted and killed Melissa. All of those taunting calls were made on weekdays and pinged out of Midtown Manhattan. The call on the 17th actually pinged off of a tower half a mile from Rex's office and was made at 12.40 p.m., otherwise known as most people's lunch hour. The taunting call on the 23rd pinged off of a tower in Queens, and Rex's personal cell phone also happened to be pinging in Queens that day. At the time of Melissa's disappearance, Rex's wife was on a month-long trip to Iceland. She left on July 8th and flew back on August 18th, Rex flew out to join her on August 10th and coincidentally, all activity on Melissa's phone stopped until August 19th, the day after Rex got back. The call on the 19th pinged off of a tower about half a mile from Rex's office. The third victim we're going to talk about is Megan Waterman. She was last seen alive at around 1.30 a.m. on Saturday, June 6, 2010, at the Holiday Inn in Hopog, New York. That date is just a month and four days prior to what would have been the one-year anniversary of Melissa's disappearance. That Holiday Inn looks to be about four miles west of where Maureen's phone pinged in Islandia. The day before Megan disappeared, Friday, June 5th, she too was contacted by a burner phone, but this burner phone had just been activated that day, almost as if she was the only reason it was being used. Megan communicated with the burner phone until 1.31 a.m. on June 6th, which is around the same time she was seen on security footage leaving the Holiday Inn for the last time. The burner phone used to contact her was never used again, but Megan's phone traveled to Massapequa Park right by Rex's home, pinging for the last time less than two hours later at 3.11 a.m. Rex's wife was in Maryland when Megan disappeared. Our fourth victim, Amber Costello, was last seen leaving her residence in West Babylon on Thursday, September 2nd, 2010, less than three months after Megan disappeared. Just like the others, the day before she disappeared at 11.33 and 11.34 p.m., Amber was contacted by someone using a burner phone. It was a weekday, which might make you think the calls would be pinging from Midtown Manhattan, but it was late and the calls were pinging off of towers in West Amityville and Massapequa Park. Now, I am glad that I told you about the Amityville house because you already know it's right between where the victim's bodies were found and Rex's house. Following the 11.34 p.m. contact, The burner phone traveled to West Babylon, near where Amber lived, and contacted her again at 12.05 p.m. Because we can, let's do some math. Amber's home was seven miles east of Rex's house, which is about a 16-minute drive. If he hopped into his vehicle and drove straight to her house without needing to so much as put his shoes on and didn't hit any traffic, he could have gotten there by 11.50 p.m. The time frame fits for someone driving from Rex's home to Amber's residence with 15 minutes for incidentals. One could venture to guess that the 12.05 a.m. call was an I'm Here notification. Around the time of the burner phone contacts, a client of Amber's showed up at her house. The client gave her some money for intended services, but before anything could happen, a witness told police that a man pretended to be her outraged boyfriend until the client left. A witness told police that the man was a tall, 6'4 to 6'6, six six, ogre-looking man in his mid-40s with dark, bushy hair, wearing 1970s-style oval glasses. And frankly, over is quite possibly the most accurate description you could ever make to describe Rex, who is, by the way, 6'4. To further conclude that the outraged man may very well be Rex, the witness recalled seeing a first-gen Chevy Avalanche parked in Amber's driveway. That recollection connected the burner phone, the ogre, and the Chevy Avalanche. Rex just so happens to look like an ogre and had a Chevy Avalanche. For anybody who still feels like that's a weak connection, hold on. Following the fake boyfriend fiasco at around 1.18 a.m. on what was now September 2nd, the burner phone sent a text to Amber's phone saying, that was not nice, so do I get a credit for next time? Within two minutes of that text being sent, the burner phone was back in Massapequa Park. I wanna take a minute here to point out that this is the first time we've heard of the burner phone sending a text to any of the victims. And Amber was very much still alive when that text was sent. All of the other victims seem to have been killed the day they met the burner phone man, but not Amber. He even had the balls to ask about credit, so is it possible that this wasn't the first time they had met up? It would almost make more sense if they had, knowing that the calls from Melissa's phone to check her voicemail following her disappearance had pinged off of towers in Babylon. The next day, it looks like Amber had some form of contact with the client the ogre had scared off the night before. He wanted to see her again, just not at her house because that was terrifying. She also had contact with the burner phone man that night at 9.32 p.m. The burner was pinging in Midtown Manhattan, but following that call, the burner traveled to Massapequa Park, then contacted her again at 10.39 p.m. and 11.05 p.m. By 11.17 p.m., the burner had traveled to the area near Amber's house. Because once again, math is our friend, Midtown Manhattan to Rex's house is 38 miles or about a 59-minute drive on a good day. The burner pinged in Massapequa Park just 67 minutes after it made contact with Amber, making for a whopping 11 minutes of traffic. There was a 26-minute break in contact after getting to Massapequa Park, but at 11.05 p.m., the burner phone contacted her again and 12 minutes later was near Amber's house. It should take roughly 16 minutes to get from Rex's house to Amber's house, but one could speculate that the 11.05 p.m. call was an I'm on the way notification, and the 11.17 ping was an I'm here notification. Around the same time the burner phone got into the vicinity of Amber's home, Amber put her own phone down, walked out of her house, and was never seen again. Rex's wife was in New Jersey when Amber disappeared. The evidence against Rex was piling up, but police were not even close to being finished. They dug into him further and found that the dude had a fucking Tinder profile, so if you've never been afraid of online dating, I hope that ended three seconds ago. Rex's Tinder profile was set up under the name Andy, which may have been pulled out of his ass as a derivative of his middle name, which is Andrew. The phone number he linked to the Tinder account was tied to a burner phone, which had been activated under the fake name of Andrew Roberts. The email used to subscribe to that burner phone was SpringfieldMan9 at AOL.com. That email account was created on January 15, 2011, under the name John Springfield, with a zip code in Astoria, Queens. That Springfield email address was also linked to a second burner phone, which had no named subscriber. That is a lot of information to process, but is a mountain of he is fucked evidence, so bear with me. On December 22nd of last year, 2022, Rex's personal cell phone was used to log into the Springfield 9 email account. The burner phone the Springfield email was linked to had logged into that same account just one month prior. Both the Tinder burner phone and the email burner phone were used extensively between 2021 and 2023 for sex work-related contacts like sex workers themselves and massage parlors. The calls would often ping in Midtown Manhattan and Massapequa Park, or more specifically, would ping off the cell towers near Rex's office and his home. But there's more. Police uncovered another fake email address connected to the same burner phone the Springfield email was connected to. That was thawk 80672 at gmail.com. I initially read it as T-Hawk 080672, so I obviously ran to figure out when Tony Hawk's birthday was, but spoiler alert, it's not August 6th, 1972. Rex's wife was born in August, but not in 1972, so we're going to stick a pin in that for now. The T-Hawk email was created under the fake name of Thomas Hawk and was used to make some extremely fucked up online searches. I'm going to go through all of the ones listed in the documents, but I'm going to do it in a way that isn't as violently horrendous as they are in their original form. According to the documents, the T-Hawk email searched for the following. Mistress in Long Island. Mature escort in Manhattan. Girl begging for sexual assault porn. Underage girl begging for sexual assault porn. I hate this. Pretty girl with bruised face porn. T-Hawk is showing here that they actually get sexually aroused by battered women. Torture redhead porn. None of the victims he's associated with killing have red hair, but let's keep going. 10-year-old schoolgirl. There was also a search for porn relating to female genitalia being cut off. And I think it's important to note that that search is in reference to porn. T-Hawk wasn't just into female mutilation. They were into it for the purpose of sexual arousal. The searches continued with skinny redhead tied up porn. Short fat girl tied up porn. Tied up and raped porn. T-Hawk made a search for asian men tied up porn but used a term i had to google which according to dictionary.com is used to reference a young gay or bisexual man who has a young appearance. He also searched for tied slave forced penis but Tehawk did not use the term penis. He went on to search ejaculation shot crying porn. Again i hate this. 10-year-old blonde hair girl, chubby 10-year-old girl, black girl, 10 years old, girl with beat-up face, another search for battered women, chubby 10-year-old girl crying, 13-year-old schoolgirl, 12-year-old girl girl with blonde hair and blue eyes. T-Hawk went down a year after searching for 13-year-olds. Blonde-haired girl, young, depressed. T-Hawk is not searching for happy people, only crying, depressed, and bruised. T-Hawk also searched teen girl, oiled bodies, pre-teen girl with makeup, nude slave girls, old janitors forcibly rape young schoolgirl in group. I had to censor the ever-living shit out of that search to feel like I could even include it here and also searched for crying girl, painful anal penetration, schoolgirl and crying teen porn. I hated every single second of relaying those searches, but I think it's important to show the pure and utter depravity of the person making them. It also ties into what we're going to discuss next. The same T-Hawk email that made those grotesque searches made some very different and very specific ones between March and June of this year, 2023. They go as follows. Why could law enforcement not trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? Why hasn't the Long Island serial killer been caught? Long Island serial killer. Long Island serial killer phone call. Long Island serial killer update. Long Island serial killer update 2022. FBI active serial killers. And then searched serial killers by state 2023. I searched that myself to see what T-Hawk would have found, and the first site, World Population Review, would have led him to a map which detailed the number of serial killer victims in each state. New York shows 677, making them fifth in the nation for serial victims. T-Hawk also would have read that serial murderers tend to be lone white males. I went through the first few search results and all tended to focus on convicted serial killers, so the Lisk or Gilgo murderer was not listed. The searches went on to include map of all known serial killers. Sounds like the maps in the previous result intrigued T-Hawk. It looks like T-Hawk got tired of reading about convicted serial killers because he went on to search unsolved serial killer cases, and that's where he would have hit pay dirt. The second result listed is an article with the Long Island serial killer at number one. He went on to search America's five most notorious old cases, and he probably meant cold cases because that's what comes up. He also searched currently active serial killers, and those results would have led him directly to a sketch of the Long Island serial killer attributing at least 10 victims to that killer. At this point, the searches started getting really specific when T-Hawk searched for terrifying active serial killers we can't find. We Can't Find was in parentheses, and there is an article with almost that identical title. The first case listed in it is the Long Island serial killer. The next search listed in the documents is John Bittroff, who was a convicted murderer out of New York who is known for killing sex workers. Following the Bitroff search, T-Hawk started looking up the names of some of his victims, starting with Megan Waterman. He then searched for Maureen Bernard Barnes, who is not a victim he's been charged with killing. He then went on to search the specific name of one of Melissa's relatives and one of Megan's relatives. I don't recall seeing the names of any of their relatives in the searches I made to test T Hawk's results, so if I was a betting man, I would guess that this is not the first time T Hawk has researched the Gilgo Beach victims. Following those searches, T Hawk honed in on how the investigation into the murders was going, searching for things like Cops Launch Gilgo Beach Homicide Investigation Task Force. We can only hope that in that moment, T Hawk successfully shit their pants. They also searched for Mapping the Long Island Murder Victims. Once again, there is an article with almost that identical title. He also searched for Inside the Long Island Serial Killer and Gilgo Beach, as well as The Gilgo Beach Killer Criminal Minds. That's actually a fandom website that quotes one of the killer's phone calls to a relative of saying... I'm watching your sister's body rot. It also lists alternative names for the Gilgo Beach Killer, such as the Ocean Parkway Killer, the Craigslist Ripper, and the Seashore Killer. T-Hawk also searched, in Long Island serial killer investigation, new phone technology may be key to break-in case. This was a Fox News article published in October of 2021, which would have let T-Hawk know that $300,000 had been spent on technology to try and tie burner phones to the location of the killer's personal phone. This article aged very, very well. The T-Hawk email also searched for various podcasts and documentaries relating to the Gilgo Beach slash Long Island serial killer murders. It was hard not referring to T-Hawk as Rex throughout all of that, but innocent until proven guilty and all that crap. But let it be known that during a thorough search of the Springfield 9 email account, the one tied to the same burner phone as the T-Hawk account, detectives found shitty ogre selfies of Rex, which were used to solicit sex. I don't know that I have ever been more grateful that someone is a fucking idiot, seeing as selfies are taken by one's self. That right there feels like it's probably enough to undoubtedly link Rex to that burner phone and both emails, but that was done when Rex was caught on surveillance at a cell phone store in midtown Manhattan buying extra minutes for that specific burner phone. Judging by the photos in the documents, it looks like he probably thought he was being slick by paying for the minutes in cash, but he was wrong. He had officially been tied to burner phone number two, but still needed to be tied to the first one, the one associated with the Andy Tinder account. And that was done when police found photos of a sex worker that had been sent to two of his fake emails from a different email. This one was hunter1903a3 at gmail.com. Police went all the way back to when that account was created and found that it had been made on Valentine's Day, February 14th of 2021. If you thought the email might have been registered under the name Hunter, you would be wrong. Nope, this dumbass registered the Hunter email under the name Andy freaking Roberts, the same first name as the Tinder account and the same full name used to register the burner phone associated with it. The Tinder burner phone had been used to solicit sex on multiple occasions by a man who went by the name of Andy Roberts with a birth date of August 6th, 1972, the same date as the numbers in the T-Hawk email address. So we can go ahead and remove that pin and watch this fall all into place. The IP address utilized when agreeing to the terms and conditions of the Hunter email address was the IP address associated with Rex Heuerman's home address. So one, two, three, fuck this guy. Rex's home IP address was also utilized twice in the spring of 2020 to search for news about the Gilgo Beach investigation and was the same IP address utilized to book JetBlue flights for Rex and his wife in 2018. The investigation into the data in this case is absolutely incredible, but that's not the only thing the prosecution has. So let's talk about the evidence collected from the victims and how it ties to Rex. When Maureen was found, three leather belts had been used to restrain her body. On one of the belts, police found a hair which they determined belonged to a Caucasian female. It wasn't suitable for DNA testing at the time, but hold on to that. As for Megan, two female hairs were found on the clear or white duct tape used to bind her. Just like with Maureen, the hairs were unsuitable for DNA testing at the time, but were both determined to have come from a Caucasian female of European descent. In processing the remains of Amber, she too was found bound with clear or white duct tape. Once again, a female hair was recovered, and was determined to belong to a Caucasian female of European descent but was, again, unsuitable for DNA testing at the time, but fear not, because that time has come. In July of 2022, the previously collected hairs were sent out to an outside lab for further testing. The testing confirmed that none of the hairs belonged to the victims and instead belonged to a woman with the mitochondrial haplogroup K1C2. Haplogroups are a genetic genealogy thing where your DNA traces you back to your originating ancestors and everyone has two, one from your maternal side and one from your paternal side. Because K1C2 was the hair's mitochondrial haplogroup, we're talking about the mystery woman's maternal side. Haplogroups are broken down into single letters like K and then get further broken down into subgroups like K1 and K1C2. To try and see if anyone in the Huerman household matched the DNA from the collected hair, detectives did the only thing they could. They dug through the Huerman's trash. They grabbed 11 bottles, because 11 is better than 1, swabbed the bottles, and sent the swabs off to the lab. In February of 2023, the lab determined that the DNA on one of those bottles had a mitochondrial haplogroup of K1C2. Police believed that the DNA belonged to Rex Heuerman's wife. We're gonna refer to her as Anna because she asked for none of this and there's nothing to suspect she was involved, let alone had any idea she was married to a potential serial killer. Following that testing, law enforcement utilized a second lab where they sent Anna's DNA sample along with the hair found with Megan's body for comparison. It was a 99.69% match. Investigators believed that Anna's hair was transferred to the crime scene due to the fact that she lived with the man accused of killing the victims. Along with the female hairs found with the victims, a male hair was found as well at the bottom of the burlap sack used to wrap Megan's body. Initially, all they knew was that the hair belonged to a Caucasian male of European descent because at the time, the hair wasn't suitable for DNA testing. That hair was also sent to the lab in July of 2022 and came back with a mitochondrial haplogroup of V7A. According to a book on maternal genetics by Kevin Allen Brook, V7A is found mostly in Slavic countries like Poland, Ukraine, and the Czech Republic, but is also found in Scandinavia, France, and Germany. The last name Heuermann is of German descent and means hired hand or day laborer. On a mission to get a sample of Rex's DNA, police followed him, and in January of this year, 2023, they snagged a pizza box he threw away in a Manhattan trash can. Swabs were taken of the pizza crust left inside the box, and by April, both the pizza crust DNA and the male hair found with Megan's body were at lab number two for comparison. The two samples came back with a 99.96 match. To sum that up, both sets of hair found with the Gilgo Beach victims were a match to people in the Hewerman household. On July 13, 2023, Rex Hewerman was arrested at his home and indicted by a grand jury for the murders of Melissa, Megan, and Amber. At the time of his arrest, the burner phone associated with the grotesque Google searches about children battered women and the searches keeping tabs on the Gilgo Beach investigation was in Rex's possession or quote unquote on his person, which specifically means that he had it with him. It wasn't just sitting in the back of some drawer somewhere. Rex is currently being held without bond pending trial and has yet to be charged with Maureen's murder, even though the hair found on one of the belts used to bind her is believed to belong to Rex's wife. To add to that, the belt used to bind her ankles had the initials WH on it. I found an obituary from 1964 where a 75-year-old man named William Huerman died. William was survived by a son named Theodore who lived in Massapequa Park. Theodore Huerman of Massapequa Park passed away about a decade later, but lived in a home that matches the address of Rex Huerman's home. Rex is Theodore's son and, according to CBS, purchased his parents' home in 1994. Is it possible that the belt used to bind Maureen's ankles once belonged to Rex's grandfather and that's where the WH initials came from? I cannot imagine that this is the last update we're going to hear in regards to Maureen, so stay tuned. I will be sure to update you. The public has long attributed who they dubbed the Long Island serial killer to the deaths of ten or more victims in the area, but Rex has only been charged with three. There is no way I'm not looking into each and every one of them after learning what we did in this episode, so a look into all of those murders and whether or not they share any similarities to the deaths of Melissa, Megan, Amber, or Maureen is coming next week. For photos pertaining to this case, check out the Gilgo Beach highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com/bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We're at the end of this episode where it's time for me to share a review that made my entire day, but I don't look at my reviews. I have Kyle send them to me because bad reviews used to really ruin my, I don't know, mood and how I felt about myself in the podcast. So he sends me all of your lovely reviews, but he is out of town at the time of this recording and I forgot to plan ahead. So I know you sent them. I love you. I'm gonna get screenshots for the next time so I can read them here and thank you because you deserve to be thanked because you're the best. I love you. Okay, I'll talk to you.